So far in the book of Jeremiah, we've been listening mainly to Jeremiah's preaching over and over again, over a period of years. He's been called by God to tell the people of Judah, repent of your sin, turn back to God or judgment will come and that will be disastrous for you. And last week, we began to get an insight into the reaction to Jeremiah's preaching. The people of Jeremiah's own town, Anathoth, have been plotting to kill him because of the message he's preaching. And we heard Jeremiah's initial reaction when he learned about that plot. We heard the first of what we could call his complaints. Passages in the book where Jeremiah pours out his anger and his hurt to God. That was in chapter 12. And in the next chapters, we're shown more of how Jeremiah's life is impacted because of his calling as God's messenger. God tells him in those chapters not to marry or have children. God tells him he's not to go to any funerals, nor is he to go to any happy occasions, no weddings or family celebrations. And the point of all that, it was unique to Jeremiah. It wasn't for all God's people to do that. But the point in Jeremiah's case was that Jeremiah's own life was to illustrate what God's judgment would mean for Judah. It would mean no joy and gladness in the land. It would mean no consolation for those who mourn. Jeremiah's own life was to be a living illustration of that. You might wonder, how does Jeremiah feel about all this? Well, how would you feel? Jeremiah continues doing what God tells him to do, but he also complains to God about it. Here are some of Jeremiah's words from chapter 15. Speaking to God, when your words came, I ate them. In other words, I took your message on board. I didn't question your words, Lord. I accepted them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you had filled me with indignation. In other words, I took your side against my own people. So, Lord... Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You are to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. Back in chapter 2, God had announced himself to be the spring of living water. But here, Jeremiah says, you don't seem to be like that, Lord. If you are a stream of living water, you seem to have dried up on me. And why is it your word seems to bounce off these people I'm preaching to? All that comes from my preaching seems to be unending pain for me. I feel like I'm wounded with a grievous and incurable wound. Those words from chapter 15 set the scene for the passage we're going to look at this morning. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 776. And in the large print Bibles, 1203. 
We're going to read chapter 17, verses 1 to 18. The chapter opens with God responding to Jeremiah's complaint. And God responds, first of all, by talking about the human heart. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Even their children remember their altars and Asherah poles beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. My mountain in the land and your wealth and all your treasures I will give away as plunder together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know. For you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs it did not lay are those who gain riches by unjust means. When their lives are half gone, their riches will desert them. And in the end, they will prove to be fools. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of your sanctuary. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. For you are the one I praise. They keep saying to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it now be fulfilled. I have not run away from being your shepherd. You know I have not desired the day of despair. What passes my lips is open before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. 
This is God's word. And this part of God's word is about the healer of hearts. This is a gracious message from God because he's giving Jeremiah insight, first of all, into the people who are rejecting him and his message. And the Lord is also giving this complaining prophet insight into himself. He is helping Jeremiah understand Jeremiah. But God starts with the people of Judah. Jeremiah has been complaining to God about his lack of success. He's been complaining about the negative reaction he's been getting. And God replies by saying, sin is deeply set in the human heart. It's very easy for us to think of sin in terms of behavior. And it is that human beings do sinful things. But according to the Bible, we do sinful things because sin is bedded deep down in our hearts. Notice in verse 1, God says, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts. Paul Mallard helps us to understand what we mean when we talk about the heart. Because in the Bible, it doesn't mean the muscle that beats in your chest. In the Bible, the heart is the deep, inner driving force at the center of all that we are. It is what steers us and shapes us and determines our decisions. It is your authentic self, the core of your being. And here in verse 1, God says that central place in us, that core of who we are, has sin engraved on it. Sin is inscribed on the tablet of our hearts. The words iron tool are probably referring to a chisel. And the tablets here are probably the kind of stone tablets the Ten Commandments were engraved on. That's the picture. And the point of the picture is that Judah's sin and rebellion are not just skin deep. You can peel away as many layers as you like from these people. And when you get to the center of who these people are, you will find sin chiseled in there. Remember, Jeremiah has been so upset that his preaching doesn't seem to make a dent in people's lives. It doesn't seem to change them. And here God is explaining why that is. Sin is deep set in people. It's at the core of who they are. So they cannot just be talked out of it. It is too much of a hold on them for that. And then that deeply chiseled sin comes out in sinful actions. That's why at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, God mentions the pagan altars and the idols built by the people of Judah. That is the outworking of sinful hearts. And when God speaks in verses 3 and 4 about the judgment that's coming on Judah, the point is it's not coming primarily because these people do bad things. 
It's coming because they're bad people. Sin, sinful and rebellious at the very core of their being. The Bible tells us the people of Judah are not unique in being like this. We're all sinful by nature. Jesus said the bad things we do and the bad attitudes we have come from within, out of a person's heart. They're the overflow of our heart. The Bible consistently teaches that sin is deeply set in the human heart. And the reason this is so important is because Christianity is often misunderstood to be about cleaning up our behavior. So people who live terrible lives tend to think they could never be Christians because they're not good enough. On the other hand, people who live outwardly moral and respectable lives, well, they tend to think they don't need Christianity because they're already good enough. But if we're going to understand what Jesus is all about and what the Old Testament is all about, we have to grasp what verse 1 is telling us. It tells us God's concern is not, first of all, with the superficial external things about us. His real concern is with the very deepest things about us. He's looking not first of all for a change of behavior, he's looking for a change of heart. We've just seen that we start out sinful by nature. So the question is, what kind of people are we today? Are we people who at the core of our being still say today, shove off God, I'm in charge, not you? That's what it means to have a sinful heart. Or are we people who have had a change at the core of our being? So that now we say, you're in charge, God, not me. Those are the two possibilities. And God sets them out here in verses 5 to 8. As we read these verses again, listen for the contrast that is being set out here. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wasteland. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Verses 5 and 6 describe a cursed person. That's a person whose heart turns away from the Lord. And the results are not good. That person is compared to a bush in the wastelands. Either sooner or later, that person is going to dry up and wither away. It's a miserable picture. And it makes no difference what that person's heart turns to when it turns away from the Lord. Turning away from the one source of life 
leads to death. And in contrast to that, verses 7 and 8 give us a picture of the blessed person. Those people have a heart that trusts in the Lord. And as a result, they flourish. Like a tree planted by the water that has its roots deep into the water. And commentators tell us the kind of stream that's being pictured here is a channel that has been dug intentionally. So this is not the kind of stream that flows strongly at some times of the year and dries up at other times. This is the kind of irrigation channel that has been made on purpose to supply water steadily all the year round. That's why the second half of verse 8 says, A tree planted by this stream does not fear when heat comes. Notice there's an expectation here that heat is going to come. Meaning, the person who trusts in the Lord is not going to be exempt from tough times. In fact, they are to expect tough times. Circumstances in their lives will get uncomfortable and at times, they may get just about overwhelming. They will be like a tree in the middle of a drought. But that person does not fear because they're like a tree connected to a water supply that will not dry up in the heat. Even in a drought, this water supply can be counted on. And the comparison goes on to say, just as a tree with its roots in this stream is going to be perpetually fruitful, so the person who trusts in the Lord is going to be perpetually producing blessing for others. Even in tough times, even when things get difficult, they will be fruitful people because the Lord provides life that doesn't dry up. Now, this is not the only place where Scripture sets out this comparison and this contrast. Here in Jeremiah, we've already seen it back in chapter 2. There, God compared himself as the spring of living water with the cisterns human beings try to dig for themselves. He said, those cisterns always turn out to be broken. They can't hold water. Meaning the things we trust in cannot sustain us unless we're trusting in God. Another place where we find this contrast is in Psalm 1. We read it together earlier. And each time the Bible sets this in front of us, it's an invitation to us to consider what kind of person we are. And wouldn't we all say well, I don't want to be a cursed person whose life dries up. I don't want to be like that. I want to be a blessed person who experiences God's never-failing supply of life. And if that is what we want to be, then we must put our trust and confidence in the Lord. The place to start is not by trying to clean up our behavior. We start by turning to him at the deepest place in the core of our beings. 
and it could be, as you listen to this this morning, you realize you have been living with a false idea of what the Bible is about and what Christianity is about. Maybe you thought it was about trying to be a better person. But now you see it's actually about a change of heart. From a heart that resists God to a heart that trusts him. The first step to knowing God is to see and admit the desperate need we have because of our sinful hearts. We can never have true life until we turn to him at the core of our being. If that does not happen, we will wither and die because of our sinful hearts. And it's at this point that our passage takes a significant twist. So far, we've been showing a pretty straightforward contrast, a very stark contrast. Two kinds of people, hard-hearted sinners who turn away from the Lord, contrasted with people who trust in the Lord. But look what happens now in verse 9. It's clear in the text that verses 5 to 8 have been the Lord speaking. It's the Lord who has given this contrast. But notice how those speech marks close at the end of verse 8, only to begin again in verse 10. What that means is, in verse 9, it's Jeremiah who's speaking. Jeremiah, who's been having a bit of a go at God, who's been firing off his complaints to God in previous chapters, making accusations about God letting him down. Even in chapter 15, accusing God of being a deceptive brook, a spring that fails. That same Jeremiah has just heard God set out the contrast between the person who trusts in the Lord and the person whose heart turns away from the Lord. God has said, in effect, I'm not the spring that fails, Jeremiah. I'm always the spring of living water. The question is, are people relying on me or are they not? Are they trusting me or are they turning away from me? And when God pauses at the end of verse 8, maybe we can hear Jeremiah gulp. Before he goes on to say, the heart is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure, who can understand it? Jeremiah is talking about his own heart. Earlier he accused God of being deceitful. Jeremiah said, I, I've got an incurable wound because I've been staying firm for you, God. But now Jeremiah stops and realizes, actually, it's my heart that's deceitful. That's the deep wound that I've got, a broken heart, a heart that's not where it should be. This prophet to the nations who's called by God from his youth, set apart for God, he's just being forced to examine his heart. And he sees in his heart a fair bit of turning away from the Lord. Jeremiah's been complaining about his neighbor's and his family betraying him. But now he sees his own heart has betrayed him. 
the servant of God has to admit that hearts are deceitful. And that includes his own heart. He wonders out loud if his own heart is beyond cure. So it turns out this passage is not only for those who have never yet turned to God in repentance. It's also for those who have. Church members and church pastors. We have to admit that our hearts are deceitful. When you and I take a deep look inside ourselves, it's not always pretty. For all the times that we find our hearts trusting in the Lord, aren't there plenty of times we find them turning away from Him? So what are we to do? Well, the answer is very, very simple. We are to keep turning back to Him again and again and again every day martin luther said the life of god's people is a life of continual repentance we run back to him again and again and we run back to him not presumptuously not flippantly we run back to him admitting that our hearts are sick. But we don't come to God in terror either, as if he'll slam the door in our face. We come to him with confidence because the Bible assures us the Lord knows and heals hearts. That's what we find here. First of all, we hear about God's knowledge. In response to Jeremiah's question, who can understand the heart? We read in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. The wording here is very important. The Lord is not saying it's all about what you do. He's saying I can see the heart behind what you do. I search the heart, so I know when your good deeds are coming from a sinful, proud heart, and I know when the masses you make actually come from a heart that was trusting in me and seeking to honor me. So one commentator sums up the point of verse 10. God's knowledge of human beings is not confined to external appearances. God can look on the human heart and can discern motives, drives, and the presence or absence of faithfulness. God's discernment is the basis for judgment. And God gives an illustration of that in verse 11 by pointing to those who are rich. God says, I know how they got their wealth. I know whether they've been unjust or not. And if they have been unjust, it might seem to have paid off in the short term for them. But over the long haul, it won't. In the end, they will be exposed for what they really are. 
person whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now most of us can read that in verse 11 and say, I'm happy about that. I'm glad that the baddies won't get away with their badness in the end. It's good. But we can probably also see this is a double-edged thing, isn't it? If God sees other people's hearts, then he can see mine too. And yours. I used to know someone whose favorite phrase was, the Lord knows my heart. Now to him, that apparently meant, the Lord knows my heart is always right. Whatever my life looks like on the outside. But most of us would hesitate to say that, wouldn't we? Because we know that our hearts can be deceitful above all things. And so by itself, the fact that God knows our hearts is not going to be a super comforting thing for us some of the time. Of course, it's good to know that when we genuinely seek to trust and honor him, he can see that. He knows. But the truth that will always give us hope is that the God who knows hearts is also the healer of hearts. That's the truth Jeremiah finds hope in. Look in verse 12, as Jeremiah responds to what God has just said. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are the one I praise. In verse 12, Jeremiah looks up. He looks up from the failure that he sees in his own heart, and he looks up to God the King. He acknowledges God's true position as the eternally glorious and exalted one. In verse 13, Jeremiah acknowledges God is the spring of living water. He once again puts his hope in God. And in verse 14, Jeremiah asks God to do his healing work on Jeremiah's own heart. Because in the end, Jeremiah's hope is not in the strength of his own faith. It's not in the purity or the firmness of his own heart. Jeremiah's hope is only in the Lord. So yes, Jeremiah's heart has been unsteady. He's been wobbling all over the place. But he comes back to the one who can heal his unsteady heart. Verse 14 is a great prayer for all of us to pray. Heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are the one I praise. That is what it means to be a man or woman of God. It means we don't trust ourselves at all. We know our hearts too well to have confidence in ourselves. But we trust him. 
We know however much our hearts let us down, he can make us like a tree planted by the water. He can make us fruitful even in difficult times. And so we keep coming back to him. The Lord, our healer and our savior. And in the New Testament, we find that healing comes to us through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament prophets, God promised a time when he would give his people new hearts with a new desire to obey. Hearts that were deeply engraved, not with sin anymore, but with God's law in that central place of who we are. We'll come to that promise later on in Jeremiah. And the New Testament tells us that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Because of his death and resurrection, he has power to heal us at that deepest level when we trust in him as our Savior. The only way to put our confidence in God is to trust in Jesus. But even now, even as Christians with new hearts, don't we still find within ourselves this lingering tendency to wander from the spring of living water? Don't we find a residual deceitfulness in our hearts? We do. And so we keep coming back and we keep praying, heal me, Lord. Keep on making me what I ought to be and want to be. Help me put my roots deeper into you. The spring of living water that never dries up. It's a prayer we will be praying until the day Christ returns. When he returns to finish his work and make us perfectly like him. In the meantime, you and I can still bring our complaints to God. That's what Jeremiah does in verses 15 to 18. He comes again with his laments about those who've been harassing and persecuting him. It's the kind of prayer we've heard before from Jeremiah. And it shows as God's people, we do not have to wait for the perfect attitude before we bring things to him. We don't have to wait until we're the finished article. We come as we are. We pour out our concerns and our complaints. We ask God to bring justice. We ask him to make things right. But above all, we ask him to make us right. We ask him to keep on searching our hearts and renovating our hearts. We ask him to keep on healing our hearts, recreating us into the image of his son, Jesus. Until the day when our love for him will finally be pure and our confidence in him will never waver again. Let's pray.
Father, we look at this passage, we look at Jeremiah, and we feel our own weakness. And if we don't feel it, we ask you to make us aware of it. Will you show us we cannot trust ourselves? But will you show us also how trustworthy you are? Will you give us a deep confidence in you? the never failing spring of living water. We thank you for new life in Jesus. And we ask you, let us be men and women who keep coming back to him every day for more of his healing, more of his strength. Let us be ever more firmly and deeply rooted in him. Make us more fruitful for him. Wherever we are, however much heat we are experiencing in our lives. However we might feel about things, we acknowledge that you are the one who supplies us even in the driest, hottest times of our lives. Amen.